0: Today, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 18. This is coming up to the time when Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and the, the triumphal entry. The end is coming very, very quickly, very rapidly. And so Jesus is teaching. And with these, been with these disciples for three years, 18 months, day and night, right, pouring his life into them. They've heard so much teaching. They've seen so many miracles. And here they are again about to learn an amazing lesson. So look at chapter 18, verse 1 of Matthew's gospel. At that time, the disciples were say, came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I had the privilege of a Pastor over at Lenexa sharing these thoughts, and they really in, in planted themselves in my life in a real way. And so I'm grateful for Pastor Chad for some of the insight that I'm giving you this morning on this. Who's the greatest in heaven? Well, on the one hand, that's not such a bad question to ask, but sort of on the one hand, I guess you could say they're asking, what do you expect of us? What do I have to do to be great, right? But the reality is, while there may be some good in that, we see this is not the only time the disciples are arguing about this. They're often sort of arguing about who's going to be the greatest when the kingdom comes in heaven. Who's going to be, who's going to be the greatest? What, what position are we going to have? And sometimes I know when we look at these texts and we hear the disciples arguing among themselves about who's going to be the greatest and who's going to be the most important and what positions they might have. Remember James and John's mother came and said, I don't care which one's on the right and which one's on the left, but my boys need to be right up there. I mean, and certainly they understood that Peter had a a very unique place in leadership of the disciples. He's always listed as first but who's going to be the greatest? Who's it going to be? How how, how do we know? And, And so they're often arguing about that, and Jesus hears that. And again, it's easy for us sometimes to look at that and think, how petty, how childlike, how silly. And then we ought to stop and say, but what about us? The disciples are walking with Jesus, but rather than focusing on Jesus, what are they focusing on? Themselves. As we go through life, the greatest struggle we have as believers is to stay focused on Christ and not on the stuff around us. Oftentimes we want Jesus to, the disciples are wanting him to make one of them greater, greater, but we all want Jesus to do stuff for us, right? I mean, we, we do. We, some of us really feel like you know, we, we get so caught up in our own life and our own troubles and our own difficulties that we just want Jesus to fix them. We want him to make them go away. Rather than to realize the real joy we have in life is just simply the presence of the risen Savior and his promise of eternal life. And his promise that one day, because of what he's accomplished, he'll remove every tear from our eye, he'll take every hurt from our heart, he'll remove every brokenness from our body. That's already gonna happen. So if we're having some difficulty here on this earth, we still have the presence of Jesus. And it's like, rather than enjoying the presence of Jesus, they're arguing over who's gonna be the greatest. And I think sometimes in our own lives, we, rather than just enjoying Jesus' presence, we get caught up in what's happening in my life and how is my life being affected. I think I told you one time, Henry Blackaby once said to me, you should never really ask the question, what, what's God's will for my life? The real question is, how does God's will, how does my life, rather, how does my life flow into God's will? It's not all about me. It doesn't begin with me or end with me. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And we see these disciples here, and they're focused on themselves and and on a bit of pride, actually. Who's going to be the greatest? And so much of the sin that we fight in our life is sin of pride, wanting to be thought much of, wanting to be made much of, wanting people to think more of us, wanting people to make over us, competitiveness with other people. You know, and pride is is, is, is a sin that is just damaging in so many ways. Here, these disciples are really dealing with pride in their life and focusing on their own lives rather than on the very presence of Jesus who is right there among them. What difference does it make at this point? What's going on in their life? Jesus is physically right there with them, and yet they're so easily distracted. So they say, Who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This house filled with people. Verse 2 says, in Calling to him a little child. Now, the Hebrew or the, the, the Greek word here doesn't mean adolescent. It really means almost infant. So he's old enough to walk, so probably two years old. You know, whatever they were just beginning to walk, two or three years old. Not 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 a not a, a child in terms of eight or nine, not like that. This is a very young, young child, but yet he calls him by name and he walks to Jesus. Can you put yourself in that crowded room with me? Full of people. Jesus is sitting there and he's teaching. And the disciples are sort of arguing among themselves who's going to be the greatest and ask the question, who's going to be the greatest? And they're hanging on every word that Jesus is going to say, you know. What's it take to be the greatest? Which one of us can maybe achieve that? And Jesus calls out the name of this little child by name. And when he does, little child just runs to him. This is an amazing picture. Here's the God of the universe who who created every star and holds it in place by his mighty power. The God who, who is awesome in strength. And he simply calls this little child by name. And the child stops whatever he's doing, room full of people, everybody, you know, he just stops and he looks to Jesus and he runs right to Jesus. And Jesus, what's he do? He just picks him up and he holds this little child. Now, children in the first century were way down at the bottom of the totem pole. You know, we didn't have uh, uh, helicopter parents and all that kind of stuff, and you know, we did you, you had a lot of kids because a lot of them didn't live past past the childhood, and and you had you just and the children just didn't. You understand that in that first century, they were just literally to be uh, seen but not heard. So, very unusual for Jesus to do this, and so calling a child to Him. He put him in the midst of them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. For whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking here about humility. Man, pride is what we have to battle. And pride is, on the one hand, pride is trying to be better than somebody else and and compare ourselves to other people and want people to make much of us. But pride is also just an over-obsession about our own lives and what's going on in our own world rather than seeing the glory of God in everything and how my life flows into that. And if I have a tragedy in my life, if I have a struggle in my life, can I have enough faith to believe that God is going to use this in some way for his glory? And in some way, he's going to draw me closer to him and he will never leave me or forsake me. And so it doesn't matter, as the apostle Paul said, what I go through in life, whether I'm hungry or whether I'm fed, whether I'm prisoner, whether I'm free, doesn't matter what happens, whether I'm lonely or in a crowd, whether I'm clothed or whether I make it doesn't happen because all that matters is that Jesus is with me and he is absolutely enough. And that's the message that Jesus is trying to tell these disciples, even in this and the people around them that were in the room, even in this picture of saying, you want to be the greatest? You've got to be humble, like this little child. You've got to be humble. You've got to understand who God is and who you are and live in that humility. And there's great joy to be found in that humility. There's not joy to be found in pride. There's fear in pride because you're afraid of whatever you have is going to be taken from you. And Jesus will never be taken from you. Never to be fear of that for a moment. He's there for all eternity. And so you the humbleness of knowing who God truly is and who we are in his presence, not thinking that that little child was not thinking about, I want to be the best, I want to be the greatest in the kingdom. That little child wasn't thinking that. That little child wasn't looking around trying to compare himself to other people. That little child just wanted to come and sit on Jesus' lap. And that's what Jesus says. You gotta gotta lay down all of your other agendas and all of your desires for yourself and simply come to me. And I'm here. And I know your name. And I love you. And that's enough. You gotta be like a little child. You gotta turn. And that word is obviously about repentance. But you don't just, when you turn and you repent from sin, what do you turn to? You turn to Jesus. (laughs) That's conversion, and repentance is when you acknowledge that sin is is sin, and and it's not just okay, you don't rationalize it anymore, and you realize God is holy and just, and we are not, and we we are absolutely, should be objects of his wrath for the sin that we've committed. If you ever ask anybody the question, you know, one of the evangelism questions is, if you were to die tonight, and God were to meet you at the gates of heaven and say, why should I let you in my heaven? And if you've ever asked that question, you've had people answer it in ways like, well, I think my goods have outweighed my bad. <laughs> or I went to church a lot. Or I tried to do what was right. Or, That's pride. <laughs> That's saying, I did some good stuff. But you know, the only answer that, that is appropriate is what? When God says, why do I let you into my heaven? It's not because of anything I've done. It's because of what Jesus has already done for me because he's accomplished it for me. You can let me into heaven, God, because I've repented of my sin and I've trusted Jesus and you took out all your wrath for all of my sin on your son. The price has already been paid and I did nothing to deserve it. That's humility. And Jesus says, unless you come humble like that, realizing, as Paul said, that even the faith to believe that is a gift of God, not something that I've done. I mean, until we come to the place daily where we humble ourselves like a child and simply say, it's enough just to be on Jesus' lap. It's enough just that he knows my name. It's enough that he just calls me to himself. I don't have to worry about who's the greatest. I don't have to worry about all the details in my life. I don't have to worry about how things are going to work out because I know they're all going to work out eventually. I know my home is not on this earth. It is in heaven. And it is there that I will be for all eternity. And the Bible says in John 14, Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. I go and prepare a place for you. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't delegate that responsibility to the angels. He prepares a place for you. Individually, the word there is by name, you, me, those of us who've repented of our sin. And the moment you repent of your sin and you turn to him and you trust him in faith, he writes your name in the land's book of life. He prepares a place for you in his home. They set another table setting at the great banquet and the angels in heaven rejoice. And I don't care who you are. That's enough. We don't need to be worry about who's the greatest, who's the most important, how easy or how hard my life's going to be. This life is like a fog and a vapor. And Jesus basically says to the disciples, quit worrying about these temporal things. Just be, like, Unless you become like this little child, just delighted to be in my presence, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 5, So whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever curses one of these little ones who believes me in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Well, now, what in the world does that mean? You know, Jesus is saying, these little ones, he's talking about those who've been converted, his children, all right? That's what he means. If you're going to be humble, be like a child and follow me, all right? And so if you follow me, I'm going to take care of you. It's one thing for someone to mess with you, right? It's a whole other thing for someone to mess with your kid, right? And that's what Jesus is saying here. In every sense, he's not talking about the age of the child, a two-year-old, he's talking about those who, when humble like faith, come to me, they're my children. And if you and then there's this amazing warning, but whoever causes one of these children of mine who believe in me to sin, it would be greater for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus here is talking about that if you're going to lead a child of God into sin, by comparison, you'd be better off to be drowned in the sea than to face the wrath of the Father. Now, let's just think about that for a minute. We don't think about that much. Frankly, yes, Jesus is the one who loves us and calls us like a little child and has prepared a home in heaven for us, thing I just said, but God is still holy, and we do need to live in, in, a, in, a, in a holy fear of an awesome God. In, in the book of Acts, it says that daily they met, and they, they, they believed, and they were in fear of God, and in fear of God, the church multiplied. And I, I really believe sometimes in our American Christianity, we try to take the fear of God away we talk about the man upstairs, or the big guy, or we become very casual about it. Or frankly, sometimes, in, in not, here, not, not at here, not at, not at uh, Pleasant Hill, but in a lot of places where you sing songs, just, it's all just about, you know, as though God is some sort of a mystic spirit that just loves the whole world. And that's true, but we sing songs here about my sin and what I deserve. And, and God is holy. You know, he, he declares himself as holy. The angels declare him as holy, holy, holy. We could read Isaiah 6 and have this amazing picture. There are actual actual angelic beings whose only job for all eternity is to declare the holiness of God. And so Jesus is saying here is, look, I love my children. And if, if you cause one of them to stumble, if you lead them astray, it's a serious issue. This is not something I take lightly. And so we have to look in our church setting, among our brothers and sisters in Christ, how are we living our life? How are we teaching one another? How are we living in, in terms of modeling for each other what it means to love Christ and follow him? Or how are we often so tended, so tendency to, to, to want our own way and want our own way and our own strength and our own power and our own direction and want people to make much of us and we get all excited about how important we are and what we want, that we can treat people poorly in our behavior. We can model for younger Christians. Look, I was in a church a couple of years ago where I actually, I was, I, was, I, was, I was their interim transitional pastor. I was not the moderator, but the church erupted into in a business meeting that was unlike anything I had seen in many of my years. And people began to say hurtful things to one another in the open in the business meeting. Stand up and say something, stand up and say something. And so I went to the microphone and I just took it away from the moderator. I said, look, I know you're I'm your interim, but this stops right here right now. There are children in this room. And you may not think it's a big deal, but if you lead one of the, if you if you implant in one of these little children, this is how Christians are to behave. You don't have to deal with your interim pastor, you've got to deal with God. Because he said if you cause one of these ones to stumble, it's better for you to be drowned than to face my wrath. Look, how we live matters. Not just because God, it's not that he's mean and angry, it's because he knows it's best for all of us that way. He doesn't want any of us to fall into sin and he cares for his flock. So if he cares for his flock, shouldn't you care for those here in the church? This speaks strongly to elders. Guys, this speaks strongly to us. The way we live our life, the way we respond to people, the way we do our task, it's a huge responsibility to be an elder, a pastor. You're going to give account for all who are in your care. You've heard me say before, most of us want bigger churches, but when we get to heaven and realize I'm accountable for all these in my care, we'll probably say my church was plenty big enough. As a Sunday school teacher, as a parent, as a church member, you see, if you take your mind and your heart off yourself and you put it on Christ, you're not going to be prone to causing these other believers to stray because you're going to desire in your joy to be just so content and happy in the presence of Jesus that you're not going to become a curmudgeon person who only wants things the way they want it and can get bent out of shape real easily. Does that make sense? And Jesus makes it clear, abundantly clear, that there's great danger in leading someone else to stumble. He goes on, verse 7, Woe to the world! For temptations to sin, or for stumbling blocks, for it's necessary that these t- temptations come. This is the bro- fallen world we have in. And woe is a desperate word. It doesn't mean like well now or let me tell you what. It means it means something bad, death, judgment, all kinds of rain down bad stuff. All right. It is a huge warning. Woe to the world for the stumbling blocks for sin. And it's going to happen in this world, he says, for it's necessary that temptations come because this is a fallen world. And one day he's going to correct this world, right? Do do we really believe that? I mean, we need to really believe. We don't preach it often enough anymore that he is coming back. He really is. He, He wouldn't have said so if he wasn't. And he's going to split that eastern sky. He's going to return in all of his power and glory and every kneel bow and every tongue confess, but not everybody's going to be saved. It'll be too late at that time. And woe to the world. Right now, it looks like the world's getting away with everything, and the church is absolutely powerless to stop it. That isn't true. One day, it's all going to change, and these people who hate us and despise us and make fun of us for our worldview, want to marginalize us, eventually may want to cost us our jobs, and all across the globe today, Christians are being martyred for their faith. One day... We ought not be hateful to them or spiteful to them or angry with them. We ought to feel great sorrow for them because they're going to face the wrath of a holy God and they're going to face absolute torment for eternity. So your heart ought to break for these people and not be angry at them because God's going to fix it all. Jesus says, woe to this world. It's full of sin and temptation and it'll be fixed. But then he takes a little personal But woe to the one by whom temptation comes or causes one to stumble. There it is again. Look, I know sometimes as Christians we think, well, I do whatever I want. Man, I've been saved by grace and, you know, whatever. This verse speaks to that. Yeah, you've been saved by grace if you're truly regenerate, although we've got to be careful. I think sometimes we're just church members. We're not truly regenerate because if you really don't care about this stuff, if you really don't feel guilty about living a life of sin, if you really don't feel guilty about causing someone else to stumble, you have to really question and say is what i possess truly saving faith or is it just church membership? But for those of us who because of God's gift, nothing we've done possess, possess, possess saving faith. We still need to look at this and realize i got to as this is this is what the apostle Paul says, i have to every single day, daily, beat my body into submission. At least I'm not worthy of the gospel that I preach. Until we get to heaven, it is a battle. And that's why we need to to realize there's more at stake than just my life. People are watching me, my children, my grandchildren, the people I work with, my neighbors, my other church members. They're watching my life. I have acknowledged I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I wear that banner. And so how does that reflect on him? And and do people look at me sometimes and say, well, if he can get away with it, I can get away with it, and cause someone to stumble. And Jesus says, if you are the cause for that temptation, that's a serious issue. Remember how the Apostle Paul says, here's how you could follow Christ. Live like I live. Follow me as I follow Christ. Wow. Could you say that? If I I attached a brand-new convert, someone who came to know Jesus today, and I said, okay, now they're going to be with you 24-7 for the next seven days, would you change anything about your life? What you watch, what you read, the language you use, how you treat your family? I probably would. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I wouldn't. But we shouldn't have to do that. We ought to live that way anyway. So Jesus hears, you know, these disciples, they were just wanting to know who's the greatest. Give us an answer. What's it take to be great? He said, well, it's not what you think. You've got to become like a child and forget everything else and just simply be delighted in me and not think about yourself. And secondly, while we're on the subject, he says, if you cause one of my children to stumble, that's a big deal. And thirdly, there is sin in the whole world, and woe to the world of it, but woe to you if you cause someone to sin. Because you felt like you had the privilege to spout off your opinion, and some young Christian heard you do that, and then they get all confused about, well, I thought this person really had faith in Christ. And then he takes it even further. Verse 8, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame with two hands than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to live an entire life with one eye rather than two than to be thrown into the hell of fire. Yeah, the disciples might be sorry they brought this subject up by this time. Jesus obviously is not saying you should do self mutilation. That's not the point of this. It's like he's obviously not saying you should put a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the sea. He's saying this is how serious it is. You can't take sin casually. Don't put yourself in a position where you know you're going to sin. Again, I don't think many of us wake up every morning and say, I think I'll be very sinful today. I mean, maybe some do. Maybe you get, you get irritated at God, you're just going to show him one. But normally, we, we, we call it stumble into sin or fall into sin. But why do we stumble into sin? Why do we fall into sin? Obviously, because we're not, usually because we're not walking with Jesus, for one thing, okay? We're not walking in the light of his word. We're walking in darkness. His word is a light into my path uh, and a, a light into my feet and a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. And so we're often, we're not in any word, we're not living with him, we're not thinking on him, so we're walking in darkness. Secondly, we end up in places we shouldn't be, looking at things we shouldn't look at, messing around with behaviors we shouldn't mess around with, and we stumble. That's what the King James and others say, stumbling block. We stumble into sin. Jesus says, look, unless you think that's just sort of casual, it's not. And then twice... Jesus talks about the fire of hell. That's not very popular anymore to talk about. But Jesus talks about it. And he ought to know because he's the creator of the universe and he's the son of God and he's fully aware that this is the case. So it's woe to the world, but even woe to those who cause someone to sin. And woe to you if you simply want to mess around with it and be tempted, enjoy the temptation and see how far you can get, you can't do that. It's better for you to live your entire life wounded than to be thrown into the fire of hell. Verse 10, so that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, he's talking about not physically two-year-olds. He's talking about those with childlike faith who have responded to him, one of his children. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. And this very interesting verse, For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, this is this, and the passage in Hebrews is where some people talk about a guardian angel. Nowhere in the Scripture does it talk about the fact that you've got an angel assigned to you, although we don't talk near enough about angels. And so when we get through with, think- with e- Easter, before I start my next, and we get through with the disciples, before I start my next series, I'll preach a sermon or two just focused on angels, and then we'll, we'll move on to something else. Because I love this. Jesus just pulls back the curtain of heaven one more time, and he gives us a glimpse, and he really talks about, look, you, you, you cannot lead one of these little ones to sin or to stumble. For I tell you, my Father in heaven, their angels see the face of my Father. I mean, the, the angels who are watching over and caring for the Church. I know sometimes we don't want to get up and come to gather worship. We're tired, we don't feel good. What difference does it make? We can always go next week. I get that. But you realize that when we come together to gather worship, obviously the Holy Spirit is here by His promise, but so are their angelic bees. They're all here. They're among us. And you think I'm weird, well, so be it. They are here among us. We're not alone. And when you feel alone and you feel cut off and you feel wounded and you feel sad and you feel neglected and you feel depressed and you feel tempted to sin, you just need to get into your mind. You are not alone. There are angels all around us. And they are not precious moments. go to Carthage, they don't look like that chapel. Don't even imagine they have wings. Why do they need necessarily wings? I mean, I know... I mean, you think about it. They're not bound by gravity. They don't have to fly like a bird. And when you die and go to heaven, you don't get your wings, you don't become an angel. It doesn't happen that way. You, angels are different beings, and they're powerful beings. They're messengers. You wouldn't want to mess with one, all right? And talks about the fact that, that we there's spiritual warfare going on in, in, in heavenly places that the angels of, of satan the angels of, of heaven are battling one another even here well how do how do angels battle each other i'm getting way ahead of myself talking about my next sermon so we'll we'll talk about that later but i love this verse i really do for i tell you that in heaven they're angels the angels of these little the angels of us always oh, see the face of my father who is in heaven what do you think and then he does this wonderful parable if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go search for the one who went astray? And when he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices more over it than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of the Father who is in heaven that not one of these little ones should perish. You're not going to perish if you're his child. He's going to seek you out and find you. I mean, it, this, this, this interesting story begins with these disciples saying, who's the greatest Jesus saying, hey, I'll tell you, and he calls this little two- or three-year-old by name and says, you got to have faith just like this. You've got to quit thinking about yourself and just be, just be lost in me and humble. And by the way, those, of us who, those who follow me, I love them dearly. They're my children, and anyone who causes them to stumble, it's a big deal. And there's a lot of sin in this world, but if you're the one that causes someone to sin, you understand you've got to face the wrath of a holy God for that. And by the way, he says, the way you live your life, you better quit worrying about who's the greatest and worry about, am I living my life in a way that I'm not susceptible to sin? I'm not falling into sin. And frankly, here's the deal. This is sort of where it all comes together. If you're sitting around worried about who's the greatest, you are absolutely on the cusp of sinning because pride is the beginning of all sin. Focusing on yourself and not on God. And then he says, and by the way, my father loves his family so much that even if one... Is going to, he's going to go and bring him back. You're not going to be lost. Look, if you don't know Christ this morning as your Lord and Savior, you've never repented of your sin and turned to him and trusted him only for salvation, then I challenge you to do that today. And know that he will write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, and he will in every sense prepare a place for you, and he, you will become his child, and he will never leave you or forsake you, and his angels are around you. And they will, they will be the ones. you remember when Jesus talks about... I'm getting in my angel sermon. Remember when Jesus talks about when the, the, the beggar Lazarus dies and he's righteous and he dies? What happens? The angels carry him to heaven. They're right there when he dies. They're around him all the time. The moment you pass away in this life, you're not alone. These wonderful angels who are around you will pick you up and carry you to the very presence of God. If you would like to have that assurance. Look, I know I got in trouble sort of because I posted stuff about Easter egg hunts on Facebook and Twitter Nobody's done more Easter egg hunts than I have in my life on churches. I mean, I've done it all, right, back in the day. and I don't want to be critical of my brothers and sisters who, who do that. So I, I, didn't, I wasn't even critical in the, piece, in the Facebook and Twitter post. I just said we have to think about if we make a big deal out of Easter egg hunts, we as adults realize that that's really not Easter. It's not that big a deal. It's just fun. But what to say to a six-year-old in our church or a five-year-old in our church if the church has a huge blowout? Easter egg hunt, and now we got to come in, and now we got to do the serious stuff of church. It kind of sends a mixed message. One's really fun and exciting, and the other really maybe not. And I think we got to deal with those issues of what we're instilling, sort of, in our children. And so that's why I wrote that. But again, I don't. I've done a lot of those things and a lot worse, and God still finds a way to forgive me and bless me and use our mistakes for His glory. So that's okay. But you know, near my house there's a church that for weeks, they've had a big sign about what they're going to do on Easter. And, you know, they're going to have bounce houses and the Easter Bunny and family pictures and all this on Easter and everything. I'm thinking, again, 20 years ago, I would have been right there with them, all right? So don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm getting old. You get old. You see things differently, I guess. I thought, man, what if we just put a big banner out there that said, (laughs) you don't ever have to be afraid of dying again. You don't ever have to look at a hearse and, not, and turn your head. You don't have to go past a cemetery and be fearful again. We have the answer to life eternal. You don't ever have to worry about where your loved ones are again. That's better than any Easter egg hunt you could ever do. That's better than any Easter bunny you could ever have. When the love of your life and someone you care for has passed away and you go to the funeral home, you don't want to see the Easter bunny. You want the risen Lord. Who went to the grave and lay dead for three days and burst forth out of the tomb so that you and I could live forever. That's the message we have. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the joy we have. And Jesus says, if you'll come to me as a little child, I'll make you my child, and I will never leave you or forsake you, and I will always find you, and you will never be alone, and I will protect you. And by the way, if you do not care for the children that I have, if you're not careful around them, if you cause them to sin, that's a big deal. You need to think hard and long about that, disciples, and quit trying to find out who's the greatest, and just simply be with me and be like me. And enjoy me. And that's greatest. Jesus, obviously, in other places, he says, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. And I'll end with this. The discussion's still going on right up until the Lord's Supper. Who's going to be the greatest? They didn't even hear this. Pride is so hard for us to overcome. And, then, and when it comes time to the Lord's Supper, what does Jesus do? He doesn't, he doesn't talk to them about it. They're talking about who's the greatest thing. Jesus takes off his, his robe, his expensive, seamless robe. He wraps it around his waist, and he takes the bowl of water. and He does what the lowest servant in the household would do. He gets down on his knees, and he slips off the sandals of those 12 disciples, and he takes his own hands, the hands who created the world, and he washes those disciples' feet, including Judas who's going to use those feet in just a few minutes to walk away and turn him in. And he washes Judas's feet. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, you want to know who, what greatness is? This is greatness, humility, service. And let me tell you something, folks. The world's not impressed with the church when it's big and great and can do big things because the world can always do bigger things. You can have a big building, but the world can build a bigger one. You can have great music, but the world can have greater. But let me tell you what the world can't ignore is when people humble themselves and serve and love people in a way that nobody else on this world loves them and even washes the feet, so to speak, of those who will kill them. That the world cannot ignore, and Satan knows it. So may we not only be people who, who seek Christ and follow him, but may we be men and women who are, who are found to be humble and willing to serve and do whatever it takes in order to see other men and women come to faith in Christ and for our life to be a testimony and a model for them.